Hello, and welcome to Shame Spiral. I'm Ellie Kremendahl, a psychotherapist turned comedian, and this is the podcast where I low-key exploit my therapy background to interview guests about all things shame. I was so excited to spiral out this week with Allison Raskin. Allison is a New York Times bestselling author of two young adult novels and one nonfiction book called Overthinking About You, which examines the intersection of mental health and romantic relationships. It's so good. I hadn't yet read it before I met with Allison, which I confessed to her in a, a pretty silly moment, but I have read it since and it is amazing. I highly recommend checking it out. Allison is also a screenwriter. She has an incredible Instagram at emotional support lady. You need to follow her. You probably all already, but if you're not, go do it right now. And she has an incredible podcast that she co-hosts with Gabe Dunn. It's called Just Between Us. It's one of my favorite podcasts. So go listen to that. Go enjoy all things Allison. You will be so happy that you did. Okay. Here's my shame story for this week. It's so humiliating that I hesitate to share it, but I have to, because it it is the, it is the only, it, it is taking up so much real estate in my brain that first of all, I've just got to get it out. Second of all, it would be insane for me to share anything but this right now. So here's the thing. Um, the comedy show that I co-host that's monthly, it's a queer comedy show. This last one, last week, we had Alana Glazer as a surprise performer, which was so amazing. I've been a fan of Alana's forever. I mean, you know, if you know anything about me, I'm sure you can guess that I am one of those girls who just lived and died for Broad City. So amazing. And I just, I love Alana. She's so funny. So I was so excited to have her on the show. And I feel, I feel like I kind of pride myself on being very chill around celebrities. Like it's important to me to not overwhelm them, to be like cool about it. Like I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. I can only imagine what it feels like to walk into any room and like pretty much everyone there is obsessed with you or hates you. <laughs> like it's it's got to be one of the two. Pretty much no one is neutral. Just like who is this person? So I'm usually pretty good about that and I just I couldn't contain myself you guys. I could not contain myself with Alana Glazer. And the way that that manifested is I just I couldn't restrict my really deep desire to befriend her and bond with her. So I just like, I was trying to talk to her about being a mom. Um, what else? I was trying to talk to her about being Jewish, about being a queer Jewish mom. And like, in reality, I know, like I didn't, even, I probably said like five things to her tops. But the thing that I've been shame spiraling about is that I felt like my desire to connect with her was out on the table. It was, it was in bold letters. It was obvious. I did not conceal it at all. And I don't like that. I don't like that one bit. And I felt like, and this might just be in my head, but I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm correct. I felt like she could feel my desire to connect with her. And it was off-putting because yeah, like when I feel like someone is like so desperate, period really, but also especially desperate to like connect with me. And this is like 
my issue, but it does make me want to give them less. Like I'm like, well, now that you want something, I'm going to give you nothing. And I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying it's human. It's understandable. And I feel like that's what I did with Alana Glazer. And I just can't stop thinking about it. It is so, okay. It's not so shameful, but it feels so shameful. So Alana, I'm positive that you uh, do not listen to this podcast, but on the off chance that you stumble across this somehow, and even though I know that you won't, I just need to publicly put it out there that I'm so sorry if I overwhelmed you with my desire to be your friend. Oof. And I'm really going to try to let it go. Also, it was just so amazing to have her on the show and I need to give myself a break for just being a person and for a hot minute (sighs) failing at my personal contract that I have with myself to be extremely cool and neutral around celebrities, even though it's not what I'm feeling inside. Okay. And that is all I have for today. I am so excited to get into this episode with you. So without further ado, let's start spiraling with Allison Raskin. Shame burning in my brain. Always in a frame And I've only myself to blame Shame Wishing I could forget my name And crawl back up from where I came I'm going down the spiral once again The shame spiral How do you feel right now knowing that we're about to talk about shame and I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about your shame? I guess I feel okay. I don't really feel like I hold on to too much shame. Um, I don't like shame. I don't think it really serves people. I feel guilt, um, but I don't really feel that much shame around that much stuff. (laughs) Hmm. That that comes up so much on here, like the difference between guilt and shame. How like how do you for yourself define the difference? Uh, I know there's like a proper way to define it, and I should know that having just literally graduated with my master's in psychology. <laughs> but um, the way I think about it is, guilt is like when like you know you've maybe done something that like you shouldn't have done, and you maybe hurt somebody, and so you feel bad and want to like atone for that. And then shame is something where it's like, you are bad, like you're Mm -hmm. a bad person and you deserve to be judged and, and have bad things happen to you. And, and so that's sort of how I differentiate between them in my brain. Totally. Me too. That's, that's my personal working definition, I think too, pretty close to it. That's amazing that you don't hold on to a lot of shame at this point in your life. Is that different? Has your relationship to shame changed a lot for you over time? Or have you always been able to not really hold on to it that much? I have changed a lot in my relationship to myself. So I know I used to be way more critical of myself and I liked myself a lot less. I don't know if I was ever someone who was so... I don't know if I ever fell into shame as much. I mean, which is weird, right? Because like I have OCD and I've had OCD since I was four years old. But I think in a lot of ways, growing up mentally ill and having to come to terms with that and having to learn to to like myself and my life anyway was probably a way for me to like push through shame 
Um, mm. because I think I, I was someone who just like never really kept that quiet or to myself. Like if you know, if you knew me, you knew I had OCD. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think that that was maybe an area where it would have been really easy to fall into shame. And for whatever reason, I, I didn't. Um, and so that it didn't really spread to other areas of my life. I mean, I could be wrong. I have a horrible memory. So maybe I think <laughs> I, I think I felt shame around around my my behaviors in college. I mm. think that I did a lot of, um, you know, I. I was desperate for love, desperate for connection. And so I did a lot of behaviors there that I think I felt shame around, but I've let Mm. that go a long time ago. Like relationally things that you felt a lot of shame about in, in your quest for love and connection. Yeah. And about like how many people I was with and like my actions and, you know, like those four years not even four, I'd say like three of those years, I'm like, whoa, that was weird (laughs) Uh (laughs) in terms of my exploits. But I I now can sort of see that that was coming from a a place, maybe even two years because I had a boyfriend senior year. So maybe like there were two years in college, two to three, where I just like really acted out um, and Uh was very um, just you can read about it in my book, but uh, you know, like did a lot of things that I now look back and I'm like, that doesn't even seem like me. Um, but yeah. I think it was from a place of hurt and from a place of of seeking rather than like that being a lifestyle that actually aligned with me. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't like you were expressing your authentic self. You were no <laughs> struggling. And it was manifesting in a particular set of behaviors. Exactly, <laughs> which I totally relate to. College was super dark. For me also. I was like, only two years? That's pretty good. Mine was the whole time. <laughs> no, three. I'll say three. Okay, three. <laughs> You're like, I can't. No, I'm not gonna lie about this. I need to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um it's so interesting to me to hear what you're saying about shame and OCD, because I think I had an assumption that you were gonna be like, Oh yeah, I have so much shame, which is totally from my biased perspective. Like I also have OCD and I've talked about it a lot on this podcast. And, um, and I have really, really struggled with shame in like a fundamental way, but it's so interesting because you got your diagnosis at like age four, correct? Mm -hmm. You said? Yeah. And like, so I didn't get diagnosed with OCD until I was, I think 35. And, um, I'm so curious about the impact of that in terms of shame, because I can imagine being able to put a name to it, not that that ends the suffering at all, but being able to at least have the knowledge, like maybe this isn't that I'm an evil person, but that this, my brain is like attacking me in these profound, constant ways could do so much for minimizing the the impact of the shame and your relationship to what's going on in your brain. Because I really just thought I was an evil person because I had no idea that's what was happening. So that's so amazing. It's incredible to think about how important that that knowledge can be and how you process all of it. Yeah, there's like a lot of debate in the mental health field about diagnoses and if they do more harm than good and if they're, you know, do we need them? And I know for me, being diagnosed was really important, and I'm very thankful for my diagnosis. I know other people don't feel that way about 
maybe OCD, about different disorders, about different things. But for me, having that clarity that like, oh, this is why I am this way. And this thing is separate from my true self has been so helpful. That's so great. And I really, something I spiral about sometimes is like, what would be different if I had had that diagnosis? And it just sounds, I mean, obviously that's an unknowable thing, but it seems like it's fair to say it would it would have been better. <laughs> I think I feel comfortable saying that. <laughs> I will caveat with like you know my mental health wasn't great. Like I'd say that like only really yeah. into my thirties and late twenties have I like gotten a handle on it. Even though I was diagnosed the whole time, but it did allow for like a, a shortcut to how I interacted with people, for how I explained myself, for how I thought about myself. Um, yeah, but it's. Yeah, if you don't know what that is, it's very, I can imagine it's very scary and overwhelming. Yeah. Well, there's no explanation other than there's something wrong with you. Like if you don't know right. what it is, like that's the, that's obviously where you'll go. And I, and it is a thing to also know there is something wrong with you kind of, right? Like, um, yes. and, and then it's also like, oh, well, you should constantly be fighting your OCD. Like you constantly need to get better. Um, and that's something that I'm I'm playing with, you know, as as both an adult and as a mental health advocate. Like, can't I also just exist? Like, do I need to be always trying to get better? Um, and Ugh. sometimes I have the energy to get better and sometimes I don't. And that's that's okay. <laughs> Rather than the narrative that I grew up with, which was like, we must always fight this every moment of every day. Mm -hmm. I can see how that can be. That could feel really exhausting. Like you're just at, like the, the good and correct thing to do is to be at war with your brain and like overcome. Mm-hmm. Even I can, like there's a an element of that that's really coming from a good place. Like you can overcome, you can live in it, you can exist in a different way if you like really work hard at it. But also, you're right. Like also just existing and not being at war is important for like the capacity to play and just enjoy your life and not be in your head about how am I doing on the battlefield today every single second. And also like, you know, symptoms manifest in so many different ways. And the symptoms that bother me versus the symptoms that bother the people around me tend to be different. So like mm. with my contamination OCD, like, yes, it's annoying, but it's like also something that I can like manage and plan around. Um, whereas like when I'm really anxious, that destroys me. Like I hate being anxious. Um, but then, you know, what do people see? People see the cleaning behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the cleaning behaviors is what extends to other people because I'm like, please don't touch that. You take your shoes off. Have you washed your hands? And so like that bothers other people. Whereas to me, I'm like, can't you just accommodate me here? You know, <laughs> and you know, I know that that's not the way to do it, but also like having gone through a pandemic, my OCD got way worse because all of these behaviors that I used to try to not do in public or that I hadn't even considered to do suddenly became acceptable behavior and encouraged behavior. And now everyone, once you figure out, oh, it's not the type of thing that sticks to services, Allison, you don't need to keep wiping down your stuff from Walgreens. It's like, well, sorry, I 
my brain really latched onto this and really enjoys doing this now because Walgreens apparently is the dirtiest place alive, you know? And so it's like, you know, like the way that, you know, the pandemic has, has left my contamination OCD and trying to fight that, but also being kind that like, we just went through a pandemic. Of course, it's so much worse. Um, That's like a whole, a whole nother new battle that I didn't have a few years ago. That's so real. Yeah. I mean, it was so, it was so ripe for the confirmation of everything you always thought was true. Like I I remember thinking like, yes, okay, I very well could die from going outside. I'm correct about that. (laughs) And it's being validated (laughs) right now. (laughs) And that's in a way not helpful. Yeah. (laughs) I, it was never about the COVID for me. Like I'm very COVID cautious. I continue to mask. I've never stopped masking. I, you know, um, believe COVID is still rampant and real and I'm extremely upset with America's response to it at this point. But for me, my OCD, it wasn't about the COVID. My OCD has never been about getting sick. My OCD is about the ick. And so it's about like germs and not germs that make me sick, germs that just make me feel gross. (laughs) And so like the behavior though was able to like latch onto it. So like it appears that I'm probably doing these extra behaviors because of COVID, but really I'm doing it because of the ick. Um, And I actually wasn't as worried about getting COVID as other people were. I mean, now I'm like, I feel like I'm the only remaining person shouting from a mountaintop. This thing is still here. But like that feels more just like Allison, the person rather than Allison, the OCD. Totally. Yeah, that's really interesting. COVID did. It really created a whole new portal for new OCD behaviors like I don't know if you relate to, I, I haven't found anyone else with OCD who has this particular thing yet, but I'm sure so many people do. But one of my weird, I shouldn't say weird, one of my things that um, co- where my OCD has showed up with COVID is with rapid tests. First of all, I cannot take one. Like I will take five of them. And they're very expensive. But then I will like, I'm like, that one could have been. That one could have been expired. That one could have been like just inaccurate for some reason. And I will hold the worst part is that I will hold the test to the like, this is with a negative result, you know, because I like when I get a positive result, I'm kind of like, okay, I have COVID. If there's a negative result, I will hold that test up to every light in the house. Like, <laughs> in such an insane way like with my phone flashlight like every lamp and I remember at one point my husband was like do you want to have COVID like are you it's as if you're looking you want a positive result and I was like I need to make sure it is not positive and I can't I just like haven't been able to stop myself from doing that I just it's like but it's one of those compulsions too where I'm like no one is being hurt like I am being hurt by wasting tests but that that that's the extent, you know. Yeah, I mean that's a thing. Like I feel like we don't talk about often is the the cost of OCD contamination, OCD and stuff. Like the things that I've ruined by wiping them down. <laughs> um, oh my god! Like what? And, 
like I, you know, like my laptops had water damage that I've had to pay for because I keep Clorox wiping it. Or there are certain things that like aren't washable. And so then I throw them out. Um, you know, like, yeah, like my, I bought like harnesses for my dogs, but I didn't want to try the harnesses on my dogs until I had washed them. And then I put them on and they didn't fit. <laughs> it was like, mm-hmm. I've already bought these, you know, mm-hmm. and committed to them. Um, yeah. So like you end up like spending money and throwing things out in this way that like, you know, is like, not ideal. And I actually think that that's a type of behavior that like would be a really easy breeding ground for shame. But instead of the shame, I try to like kick in the self-compassion. I feel like self-compassion yeah. is like the um, antithesis of shame. And I've mm-hmm. I've leaned into that a lot of the years and I've gotten the muscle really strong. And so now whenever I really do anything wrong, I'm like, oh, well, you know, you're doing your best. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that. I totally agree. And it's interesting (laughs) to go back to what you said earlier, like where it's easier to have that um, and the places where it's much more raw and a climb that involves so much more effort. Like I don't really have, like I don't have shame about my behavior with the COVID tests. I'm like, whatever, this just makes me feel better. It's fine. I don't, I don't think it makes me a bad person, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but and but that's what people see. Like that's what my partner will see me being like, just like out of control with every lamp in the house. But the the things no one sees is where I've had the hardest time with shame. Like just like the thought. Like I have pure O primarily. Oh yeah. And so like just the thoughts about being like fundamentally evil and all the different iterations of that like that's completely internal no one sees any evidence of that but that's what's been the most damaging and difficult to have compassion around for me because then it's so it gets so wrapped up with the lying stuff too where I'll be like if you try to tell yourself like this is just OCD you're not a monster like you need to have compassion I'm like but I am a monster like don't you know you can't lie to yourself Ellie about being a monster. That's even worse. Like just admit that you're a monster. Like it's so dark and so hard to extricate yourself from. Have you ever just said, okay, I'm a monster? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) I'd be curious to just lead into it and go, sure, I'm a monster. Doesn't need to change my behavior. Sure. All right. I feel like this is a moment that should have happened for me in therapy. I'm feeling very <laughs> exposed. You definitely <laughs> just got your master's in psychology for sure. Um, you know what I've gotten close to is something kind of like, even if I am a monster, I feel confident that I would never act on it. So mm-hmm. that's similar to what you're saying. but. Yeah. But I haven't gone like full stop. Like, sure. Yes, I'm a monster. Yeah. You think that would be helpful? I think it's I think it's an interesting thing to try because I think you might actually feel like when you and when you claim it, then like the rest of you might be like, actually, huh, that doesn't feel true either. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Like it would give room to the other parts. Yes, gives room to the other parts. You're not constantly fighting this thought. You just like take so much of the power away from the thought. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, yeah, all right, I'm a monster. I don't need to, I'm going to continue to live my life the way I want to live my life, but sure, I'm a monster, whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. It, but it's, it's, it, if you have never tried it, it's, it, it could, you could see how it feels a little bit. <laughs> It's so funny. Like I like you know my background as as a therapist. I am so much more comfortable talking about this stuff when it involves someone else. Like I can yeah. talk about I can talk about me in a way that seems really vulnerable, but it's very protected. And mm-hmm. I feel so anxious right now. I'm like, we gotta get away. I'm from sorry. This. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. It's really good. It's like. I hate it, but I love it. Like I love when I'm talking to someone who can actually like say something that gets through. So damn, Allison. Okay. Um, but now back to you. Uh, so, so we're going to do a little pivot. We're going to play the shame game. It'll be interesting to see since you're someone who isn't that plagued by shame. But um, I'm going to ask you to consider which of these scenarios would make you have a bigger shame spiral. And then we can kind of process why a little bit. Okay. Oh, I love it. I love a game. Fun. Okay. So let's, let's say the strike is over. Okay. Like things are back to normal and everything. And um, you have some big TV thing happening. That's a really exciting, very special thing for you. Dream project. It's all going great. It's at the beginning stages though. Um, And you're at like a, dinner like a worky dinner with these like the people in charge like all these network executives and stuff and it's it's anxiety provoking you know but because it's so important to you and they're you know like fancy network people you are eating dessert like the dinner's gone pretty well people start making you know everyone starts kind of doing a bit where it involves like raunchy ish jokes and it's not like inappropriate but it's okay. just, you're kind of like, what's going on right now? But it's, it's okay. It's okay. It's just like raunchy content. And then the main, like, let's say, I mean, you're, let's say like your boss, like the, the person who has the most power and that you want to impress and do well by the most within this conversation looks at you in a way that makes sense to the um, flow of the conversation and says, you should have, you should have more kink. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, what? Why would? Why would he say that? You know. And then what you want to say is just like, what is? Why would you say that's so inappropriate? You know. But instead, in that moment, you're just like, I have kink. Like, I'm I'm pretty kinky. Like, I've whatever. Like, you don't know me. (laughs) You don't know my life. And everyone gets like really quiet. And then he's like, I said you should have more cake. Like you're eating, (laughs) you're eating cake and then everyone laughs and it's fine. You know, it's fine. But you start spiraling really bad. Like you just start having a really bad anxiety spiral for the rest of the dinner and you kind of can't recover from it about like why you said that, what it means, like what these people think of you now, what they think about what you said, like they, they think you're kinky. Why would, why did you even think that they said that that's crazy you know so you go to a dark place (laughs) and then but everything seems fine and then you Mm -hmm. get home that night and you are just 
you're off to the races. You cannot sleep. You cannot stop thinking about it. And so compulsively at 3 a.m., you send an email to this man. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. And it's just one of those compulsions where you're like, I will feel better if I send this email. And you're just like, I don't know why I thought that. I feel like that was so weird and inappropriate. Like, I'm just... I have mental health stuff. I'm just freaking out. Like you really like should have checked in with your like best friend or your therapist before you sent this email, but you didn't. And then you send it, whatever. And you wake up and this executive has written back and has just been like, please don't email me at like worst possible response. Please don't email (gasps) me at 3 a.m. Like this was inappropriate. And like, I, it's really important to me in our work relationship to like keep things boundaried. Meanwhile, they're the person who was making raunchy jokes, but that's the response. And then you just have to like sit with that. Okay. So that was very elaborate, but that's okay. scenario one. Okay, Ugh, here's, okay. here's scenario I hate two. this guy, but okay. <laughs> I know. I hate him too. I hate him too. <laughs> the worst. But also it's like you were, you are in that bind where it's like he holds the key to this thing you like really, really oh, want. Yeah. So it's complicated. So, okay. Let me actually ask you before I do this one. Mm-hmm. So are you, you're in a relationship now. I'm getting married uh, in like a week and a half. Lesson. Oh my God. Okay. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Let's go back to earlier in your relationship. Sure. And you're very into this person. Um, You're not engaged yet, but it's like pretty serious. It's going well. And you're with their family and you haven't met their, it's like the second time you've been with their family Mm -hmm. and you're staying at the family's house. And if any of this like doesn't fit with the reality, just like suspend your disbelief a little bit. So um, I get it. I understand art. I know. I know you do. So, so similar premise, like you're at the kitchen table, you're eating cake, let's say it's somebody's birthday. And you think that um, this person you're dating's mom or dad, or whatever parents says, you should have more kink. And you really want to say something, but you just kind of freak out completely silently you say nothing and you just like Mm -hmm. let it go the conversation goes on but you really start spiraling about like why their parent would say that to you and how inappropriate that is and how uncomfortable it made you and you just like can't stop thinking about it and you're kind of like this person is really special to me if I'm going to be a part of this family like you feel like maybe you're going to end up engaged you know so you're like Mm -hmm. I have to I have to set the boundaries I want as a potential member of this family and like stand up for myself. So it becomes like loaded in this way. Okay. And then you, so you approach the parent oh my God. and privately <laughs> later and with a lot of emotionality because mm-hmm. you've been working yourself up to this conversation for a while. And you basically say like, Hey, that really wasn't okay with me. Like, I don't understand why you would bring up like my sex life or my sex life with your child. I am not okay with that. And you, you are like just kind of vomiting it out. Mm -hmm. And then, um, the parent is just kind of like, first of all, I said, cake, and also 
they just don't handle it well. Like they're kind, and it's not that they're a bad person or fucked up or anything, but I think it triggers them. And um, they're kind of like, I don't know why you would even think that like what the vibe is kind of like, what is wrong with you that I, that you yeah. would even think I said kink. Like uh-huh. I want, I don't want to know anything about your sex preferences, your sex life with my child, like as if you're really gross for going there. Okay. Okay. And, um, okay. And there's more, I'm sorry. Oh no. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So then whatever you talk about it with your partner, it's fine. You're like, I'm going to move. I'm going to recover from this. And Uh that, but it's very interesting. Let's say it triggers a big OCD or just anxiety thing about like, even though their response was fairly benign, that it triggered, like, what's wrong with me? Like, I'm sick, like, whatever. And you write about, like, you write an article about it, about, like, how interesting that is. And you don't name them. You don't put them on blast for, like, anything. um, And you feel like that's fine. And then you, it gets published. It gets a lot of attention. And then you get an email from, let's say, the mom or dad. Let's say the mom. And it's very curt. And the mom, your future possible mother-in-law, is just like, please do not talk about my family in your work. This is so uncomfortable and inappropriate, period. You know? End of scenario. Okay, so those are the two scenarios. (laughs) I will say, like, as someone who writes about my life uh, explicitly, this is like um, a touchy subject of like what I can and cannot write about and including other people in my work and all that stuff. But even with all of that, I think that, well, first, can I say what I would do in real life if I had had that misunderstanding? Which one? Both? The fir- well, I guess, the, yeah, either. But I guess really the first one, like okay, where, it, yeah, was pub- yeah, tell where it was public and I had said, Pink and then he said cake. I would be bringing that up constantly. The rest of the <laughs> dinner, I would just be like, "Hey, remember when I thought he said kink and now he said cake?" Like I would have leaned into that big time. <laughs> I feel like that's so much better. That's such a great way to diffuse it. Yeah, like I love like my one of my go tos. If like if something embarrassing happens, either for me or another person, I'll go. This is so embarrassing for me. Or I'll be like, this is so embarrassing for you. <laughs> um, because it's so, as soon as you say that, like so much of it goes away and it's just yeah. like can become funny and silly. So, so I true. wouldn't have sent that email. I would have just like been roasting myself for like the next 30 minutes straight. Um, yeah. And like if someone said something like, oh, I'm sorry, were you asking more about my sex life or what was that? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But the email is where things get bad for me. I, the email is is very icky. And so I guess I feel like I feel like my behavior in the first scenario was worse than in the second scenario. In the second scenario, it feels a little like this other person is behaving mm-hmm. badly. Mm-hmm. And um I try really hard to not blame myself for other people's behavior. Mm-hmm. So like, I think if I had, well, I do think that if I wrote that article, I would have had to share my share it with my partner. Um, I think yeah. that that's like a clear boundary. So if I shared it with my partner and then their parent got mad at me, 
like that sucked, but also I feel like I have years to repair that or maybe like, I don't know, I'm a little weird. Like maybe they don't like me and I'm okay with that. Like, you know, Um, but then with the executive, it feels like, oh, I don't have as much time to repair. I don't have a lifetime with this executive. I also am not the only option for this executive wherein I'm the only person dating the partner. Um, They have probably tons of other projects. So I guess I I tend to, to freak out. I, you know, I'm very attached to my career. And so I think that I would be more worried about the, the fallout of the career one, whereas I'd feel more confident in repairing the family mm-hmm. one. Totally. I get that. And what, what would your shame spiraling look like in the wake of that first scenario? That I think I, I would feel very silly that I sent the email, that I had lost control of myself and that I couldn't have just let a silly interaction go and that I turned it into something much bigger unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would feel shame about mishearing someone because I mishear mm-hmm. people all the time. Yeah. Um, but I think the email is where I would be like, oh, this was a direct action that I thought about and decided to do. And then that ruined things or made things worse. Mm-hmm. And that would be hard to let go of that behavior that behavior because that's a choice versus like a mistake totally yeah me too i think i think that would be the worst part for me as well because it's so clearly like you had agency over that and you let yourself Mm -hmm. do the like unprocessed thing (laughs) yeah in the in the belief in the like momentary belief that it'll just provide well that it would provide immediate relief but like that long term, right. it's such a bad call. Yeah. So that that's the worst one for me. But I don't think I would have gotten to the email because I would have just been goofing about it for so long. <laughs> yeah. I love that approach so much. I think I I think I have a similar kind of like it is if you're consumed by it like that, it is it's like pushing the escape valve to just be like oh yeah so like what you said like who else wants to know about my sex life (laughs) you know like (laughs) or like misunderstanding every question as like oh yeah no what's my number like just (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) leading into it baby (laughs) that's so great I love that so much um so I asked you to bring a particular real story of shame from your life to add to the little shame spiral, a hall of shame. Do you have one you're ready with? Yes. Um, okay. And again, I don't know if like shame is the emotion that, that uh, I have two, I guess I have two, so I'm not sure which one to go with, but I guess I'll go with, I'll go with one that I felt the shame more directly right afterwards. Cause the other one that I didn't realize what had happened until later. Um, so I, I have to paint the scene a little bit. I went to boarding school for the last two years of high school, which was a mistake, but we all make them. And the boarding school had like a lot of, you know, its own like weird rituals. And, and one of the rituals is this thing called garden party, which is for the, the girls at the school. Because um, at that point, you know, non-binary people weren't on the radar for this rather conservative boarding school so the the girls had this tradition called garden party that was left over from um when my school was uh an all girls school and an all boys school combined and so it was a leftover tradition from when it was an all girls school 
Okay. And basically a senior girl would take a junior girl to a garden party. And so it was like you would have a date for this party and people would ask their dates like years ahead of time. So like you would have like a sophomore asking a freshman to like be your date for garden party. Okay. And I came in as a new junior and I was friends with other new juniors um, in sort of a... uh, like I, I let's just say I didn't stay friends with them. I had a lot of social issues. I uh, had a lot of black and white thinking. If I felt I was wronged by anybody, I would like cut them off. Like stuff I, I had to work through. Um, and my my best friend had told me that she wanted to invite this one sophomore to garden party, and I was like, great. But then I was like getting ready for a show and I was like talking to this girl and like we were getting along so well and just like it came out of my mouth that I asked her to go to garden party, which was like stealing my best friend's date to this like pretty important event. And to this day, I think back of like that was like one of the meanest things I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Um like not, I wasn't intending to be mean. And I'm sure that like part of it was that like I was very impulsive and I didn't have a lot of self-control. And so I thought I'd like her to be my day. And then it just came out. But like, obviously that was like very unfair to my friend. Um, and, and like later our, our relationship fell apart and whatever. And, you know, at the time it was all like, oh, they're the problem. But like looking back, I'm like I was also a problem. <laughs> And yeah, like that just felt to me like, you know, there was no way to explain away what I had done. I knew that I shouldn't have done that. I knew that that would be hurtful and painful to my friends and I did it anyway. And so um, I still think of that as like one of the worst things I've ever done. Do you have more thoughts about like what kind of created that impulse? I have a horrible memory, so I barely remember like yesterday. So it's hard. for, And like, I'm also as you are like terrified of lying. So I can't like go into like exactly how I was feeling that day or exactly like yeah. what led to it. But I don't think it was premeditated. I think I just like the thought occurred to me, I'd like her to be my date, And then I and then I selfishly asked, I think that's what it came down to. I think it was a very selfish act, more so than in a malicious act. Yeah. Yeah. Like you just wanted something and you just like did it. And without really yeah. thinking about how it would affect your friend. Yeah. So does that, the shame stuff in terms of how it touches on that, like what did, what were the stories you told yourself about yourself because you had done that? Like, did you think it made you like a bad person or like a bad friend? Like what's wrong with you that you had that impulse? Ugh, I don't, re- I don't know. I know that then like, things quickly kind of fell apart with that friend. Um, And then she, at the time I felt was mad at me. I think I didn't understand the gravity of what I had done. Actually. I think at the time I knew it was a mistake, but then when my friend was like later mad at me, I like didn't understand, like I felt like I was the victim and I like couldn't understand like, you know, and then I was like, well, I can't be friends with any of them anymore. Cause I, I'm better or something. Whereas like looking back, I'm like, I'm sure she was so mad at me. Like I did a really bad thing. (laughs) I don't, I, again, I don't remember everything, but like, I think I probably shouldn't have been so shocked that my friend later seemed to have issues with me. Like I had contributed to those issues. Mm-hmm. And then is that part of the shame too? Like, again, like the behavior, like how you kind of managed the aftermath? I, you know, I've struggled a lot in friendships and I think friendships remain a big, like, open wound for me 
in a mm. lot of ways where like all of the confidence I have, all of like the ability to like assume that things are fine or that I'm good, like kind of washes away when it comes to friendships. And so I don't know if I've like stayed in the shame part of it, but like a friendship is continues to probably be the most difficult and triggering area of my life to navigate. Mm-hmm. What comes up for you around friendship? Like what makes it so different? What's the struggle like? I've lost so many friends over the years and um, I just don't trust that my friends love me the way that I love them. That like that my relationships are as strong as other people's friendships are. I have a lot of insecurity in my friendships. Um, It's something I'm like actively trying to work through, but it's also something that I like very easily fall back into. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like a core thing that's always been hard in that way. Yeah, like it's interesting to be able to have seen that I've, you know, I don't feel, I don't feel insecure about my work, really. I, I feel like a lot of the entertainment industry is luck. And so something doesn't work out. It's like, well, it's not because I'm terrible. It's like, you have to have luck, things have to be aligned. Um, Like with my relationship, you know, like I was left by my ex-fiance incredibly abruptly but even though that happened i have no fears that my current fiance will ever do that to me i like that i've worked through all of those trust issues that came with my broken engagement but man friendship friendship is like if i feel slighted by a friend even like a tiny bit i like am in a bad mood for like the rest of the day And what happens in your head? Like, if you feel slighted, what's the journey you go on? It's like, oh, like, of course they don't care about you, Allison. Like, it's so embarrassing that you consider them to be as close to you as... It's so embarrassing that you think that they think of you as close as close to them as you think of them to you. You care way more about them than they care about you. Their friendships with other people are far stronger than their friendship with you. Like, yeah, you're their friend, but you're not the person they go to. You're not their good friend. You're not their best friend. Like all the bullshit. Um, oh and uh, and like constantly being like on the lookout for like ways to either affirm or, or disprove that I'm important to them. Um, <laughs> like it's, it's garbage and it sucks. And it's like really annoying that it remains like the final frontier and like the work I still have to do. <laughs> totally. Everyone has their own final <laughs> frontier, but that's a hard yeah. one because friendship is like part of what makes life tolerable. It's such a big part of what makes life tolerable. Like, even when earlier you were like, oh, like, and you didn't even have a chance to, like, talk to your best friend before you sent that email, I was like, oh, I would never talk to a friend. I would have talked to my partner because I don't feel comfortable. Like, I wouldn't, I don't have anyone in my life other than my partner and maybe my parents where I would, like, contact them in the middle of the night about something. You wouldn't. Like, you wouldn't allow yourself to because of the story you have about Mm -hmm. where you stand with them. Right. Uh. But also my partner is my best friend in a lot of ways. And so it's a lot of, of reframing that it's like, not that I don't have a best friend. I just have a best friend who's also my partner and that's wonderful. And then I have other friends as well. <laughs> totally. Totally. Like if you allow yourself to think about like, what if I, I mean, I know you said you were like working really hard on this. Like if, what if I did just like reach out to a friend, even though it feels so counterintuitive, does the, 
thought just like give you so much anxiety to think about like kind of pushing yourself to do that? Well, I guess my instinct would be like, no one would be awake in the middle of the night. So like if we were just pretending like during the day, maybe feels more. <laughs> realistic okay. During me. the day, during the day. <laughs> the middle of the night's too far. So let's, let's like, yeah. tie tra- let's titrate <laughs> let's it, it and make it 2 PM. Ah. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I will turn to friends and I and I've had to, you know, like I've had to ask big things of my friends and my friends have shown up for me when I've asked that I've had to when my broken engagement happened in 2020, I had to go home to New York to like grieve and my one of my best friends had to like go to my apartment while I was away and like get my mail and send me things and like do all this stuff that like made me very uncomfortable to ask, Mm -hmm. but she did it. No problem. And um I had knee surgery and I couldn't drive yet and I needed to get picked up from physical therapy uh, because my partner was busy or something. And so one of my other best friends drove across the whole city to pick me up. And so like when I need it, I ask and I, um, I've learned that that's really important to do. But like for an emotional ask, um, like... I, I probably do it like the night that that my fiance left. I'm pretty sure I called one of my best friends right away and um, my family. You know, I also have a very close relationship with my parents. And so I think that they also mm. fill a friendship hole for me. But yeah, it's it makes me uncomfortable. Like I just like I just like assume that I'm doing friendship wrong all the time. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> or that I can't get that. I'm like an amateur friend. Like I'm like, or I'm like a level two friend, like these friendships and I've had friendships that are really close before. And so I think I'm constantly comparing my adult friendships with these friendships I had when I was younger. And I think Uh that that's kind of an unfair thing to do because your lives are different. People are busy. You don't see your friends as often, Mm -hmm. but I don't. You know, like I had a best friend in my 20s who decided he didn't want to be friends with me anymore. And so I think that that left a real, a real hole and a real wound um, mm-hmm. where he was someone who, if anything had happened, I would, I, I, I felt a level of comfort in that friendship that I don't have anymore. Where like I, I felt like I could always go to him with anything. Yeah. Um, and I know that my friends would let me and that they'd want me to, but I, it's my own barrier. Totally. Like you don't let yourself do it. I relate so much, you know, in my own versions of this to the struggle that you're describing, because it's like, I know intellectually that the way to shift that and like those, like from the most intellectual, like from the the neural pathways, like the level, (laughs) the level of your anxiety in your body, like that the only way to diminish it is to show your body that if you do the thing, first of all, it's not as bad as you thought it was going to be. Also, maybe you'll have a good result and that that's like a new story that gets metabolized. Like you, it's like easy to know all of that intellectually, but it's just, it's even easier to be like, why I don't have to text my friend to say that I'm having a hard time. I can just not. And that feels much more comfortable. And it's so true. I feel like that's so relatable what you're saying about like, it can feel so much easier to do it if you're like, well, I'm getting my wisdom teeth out. Like clearly I have no choice. So I will ask you to pick me up, but, but asking someone to just sit with you because you really need a friend. 
is just such a bigger lift if you have that, if you have that struggle. Yeah. And I think what's frustrating for me is that I keep having moments where it's shown that my friends care about me. Like at my bachelorette party, like I was so blown away by how everyone showed up and how people were there for me. And it felt like, okay, this is a turning point for me. This is a turning point in the story I tell myself and moving forward, I won't fall into these thoughts anymore. I even wrote about it on my Substack. I was like, my friends do care about me. I can't believe it. You know, like, and I was like, things will be better now. But then like literally yesterday, I found out like one of my bridesmaids went dress shop. She's getting married right after me. And like, I've now found out that two times she's gone dress shopping for her wedding with other friends, not me, which like whatever. But like, I'm devastated. Like, yeah, was like so upset. Like, I'm like, it's, I can't, why did I, like, this is so embarrassing. I even asked her to be a bridesmaid when she's not even asking me to go dress shopping with her, you know? Oh, and my. like, it's like, it's like, Allison, calm down. Like, she's going to be a bridesmaid. She's, she's happy to be a bridesmaid. Like, her relationships with other people doesn't, you know, there's not like a, a finite amount of love you can have for friends. So you have to dole it out accordingly <laughs> like her relationships with other people don't you know need to reflect how she feels about you but it's like nope can't get there instead i'm just going to be really pissed off while i do my final dress fitting <laughs> and then how do you like generally manage that like what's your process of trying to like let that go or like um extinguish it for yourself well one instinct is like fuck this to pull away and to uh -huh. be like, I'm no longer going to, <laughs> like, be as close with her, which is a, yeah. a really not healthy response. <laughs> it's very self-protective. Yeah. Very self-protective. Um, and then you just sort of wait it out. I mean, I think that that's, like, a lot of it is, like, you know, our feelings don't last forever. Like, um, just wait it out. See how I feel later. You know, I can maybe take a few days to myself. Um, and I think, I think the thing that I have to work on is that like, that I'm not locked in to this level of friendship that like, there's a possibility mm -hmm. that like in the future, I will meet somebody who really fills the role that my old best friend fill. And that like, even if I'm not getting that from anybody right now, like my mom met her best friend when she was 40. So mm -hmm. like I'm 34, like maybe in six years, I'll meet the person that like, I do feel comfortable going to who like, I do feel like it's the same level, like, and, and paying attention to like, oh, if that's what I want, but that's not the type of friendship that some of my friends are interested in, or that they, that, that is their natural state of friendship or you know then like i'm allowed to continue to to look for that with with new friends um, mm -hmm. i think is also helpful rather than like forcing a dynamic with people where that's like not our natural state yeah because you just want that to be created so badly and it would mean so much and feel so good and people are true. different in friendships like some mm -hmm. people aren't like that with anybody yeah and so I can't try to get that kind of friendship from people who don't have those types of friendships. 
Yeah, it's very similar to romantic relationships in that way. Mm -hmm. It's like if you just keep trying to like pull someone through a door with you, but they like never, they're not going through because they are like not capable or just disinterested in going through that door. So it's like, if you want to go through that door, you have to like walk through with someone else. (laughs) But (laughs) I feel like that took me so long to learn. I think it's so hard. The thing about friendships in your 20s and what that how that changes after your 20s is so real. And I'm always so jealous, like in a way that then spirals my anxiety when I um, see people not in their in their 30s and 40s or older who have like this like tight circle of mm-hmm. friends that they like, like my sister, I went to her baby shower recently. She's younger than me. She's just a different person than me, but she has like eight girlfriends who are like her other sisters. And I'm just like, why can't I have, like, why can't I have that? Like, what is, yeah. what is wrong? What is broken about me that my sister can have that? And I can't. And a core thing that I always try to look at is that part of why she has it is because my sister is someone who picks up the phone when people call her. She also makes phone calls. She like tells people how she's feeling. <laughs> like she does <laughs> she does the things that lead to vulnerability and intimacy. Like she does the vulnerability that leads to intimacy. And I really struggle with that. Like I'm kind of like you, it seems like where I'm like, like the other night I was kind of spiraling about something and I texted a friend who I think could be a really good friend. And I was like, let me just share this with her. And she was so great. But the whole time I was like, this is so, she's probably so annoyed. She's like, why is Ellie bothering me with this? Also, also it's embarrassing of me. The embarrassment thing you brought up is so interesting. Like it's embarrassing of me to even think that she wants to hear this or is willing or cares. And anyway, that's why it's hard to have that because the steps that make it are really difficult for me. And those things are so related. It's not like magic, you know? Yeah. And another thing is like, I'm like, do I want to text with my friends all day? The way my sister texts with her friends all day. And I'm like, actually, no. (laughs) Like, I know. I find it annoying to text with people all day. (laughs) Totally me too. (laughs) (laughs) And so maybe I'm trying to fit me a square peg into a round hole because I've like seen this as the idolized version of friendship when maybe even the type of friendship I think I want isn't actually right for me at 34. Um, Oh my God. So true. I relate to that too. I'm like, I don't even want, no, like I don't want that, but I want the idea of it. And you know, maybe it's like, maybe if you are that kind of person where it's like, you don't necessarily want to do all those things. That's why it can feel so special when you just like have one of those friendships that bloom in a way that does feel kind of magical where they're just actually like, you're so close and you didn't Mm -hmm. have to work that hard for it. Like I had a best friend in my twenties also that it was just like that. It was like, we fell in like platonic love, you know, like when I think about it, I remember love feelings, but it was completely platonic. And then I left California. She like right before we turned 30, like she got married, she had kids and we're 
close we're close now in the way that we love each other but we don't talk like almost ever and i still feel like kind of heartbreak feelings about that and i'm like why can't i have that you know but it was all very it was it was in a moment it was in a time specific moment and i also think we can return to old friends like i think mm. that that's actually a way to find the connections you want without having to start from scratch like there's a friend who i like fell out of touch with for a few years and now we're back in touch and like you're not starting over you know like you have the history you just kind of have to fill in the gap so that's another thing is like reminding myself that like friendships ebb and flow like the level of closeness the level of how often i talk to somebody can change it can Mm. it can go both ways we can get closer and more apart we can get closer and more apart um yeah instead of like i must I must find a totally new person. Mm-hmm. The reality is more nuanced. And it's so fascinating. Like a very black and white story you can tell yourself about friendship can prevent allowing for that nuance, like prevent a friendship from ebbing and flowing. Like if you just kind of like, yeah, I've decided this is the thing and you do that to protect yourself. What are you kind of locking the door behind? And like, what is your schema around friendship, right? So like, my schema is that my friends don't care about me. So then every action is seen through that <laughs> lens. And so like, they're, they have a real uphill battle, right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Um, to fight against that. And that's not really fair to them either. Oh, my God. I love that we're talking about schemas and that you said schema. <laughs> I am obsessed with schemas. I think of because- Me too. <laughs> You are. <laughs> oh, I love them. <laughs> I think about Me them all too. the time. <laughs> Me too. Did it, what's your process with that? Like, did it blow your mind when you kind of learned about schemas? Mm hmm. Uh huh. Oh, yeah. Same. Yeah. Like, you got to change your lens sometimes, and that changes everything. Just the notion of that we even have a, an invisible lens that is mm-hmm. that you're, that you're processing everything you're experiencing and seeing through is was so shattering to me in an incredible way because it's like no one talks about that like you don't learn about that in like normal life or normal education and thinking about like this I find it so fun and interesting to distill those schemas down to like the one sentence like the log line of each schema basically because yeah. you can so clearly then see how it drives all the action <laughs> You know, like if your schema is like, my friends don't care about me, you're so right. It's just like everything gets passed through that filter when it's like not even true. It's just a pair of glasses. It's so wild. It's really powerful to learn about it and to remember that you have more control over it. And that like there is no real reality. It's just like how you view things. I know that it, that's so um, I feel like it it was transformative for me to start thinking about my schemas in that way, because I, everything I thought was reality. I was like, it's just this set of like, li- like sometimes I think of them because it helps me as like literal glasses and like I have a drawer full mm-hmm. and different moments evoke me to magically be wearing a certain pair and that that's defining what I'm deciding is true and like you can also just be like 
take off the glasses and look at them and be like, is any of this true? Or that's the story that these glasses create. But then also not being like, oh, okay, now that I've identified these glasses, I should easily be able to throw them away. You know, I think that's yeah. where I get frustrated. Is it's like, okay, I know that I'm I'm thinking about this in an unhealthy way, but like I can't immediately stop that pattern. And so like the yeah. work is like recognizing it, fighting it, recognizing it, fighting it, instead of just like one motion of like, ah, now I can see. <laughs> A hundred percent. Yeah. Because that can be so shame inducing, like an idea that you should just be able to like, like knowledge is power full stop. Like, and, and as though that Mm -hmm. means it's easy to just like the worst therapists are the ones that are just like, so now you know that. So like, don't do it like that, that vibe. (laughs) It's so toxic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite things I learned in school, one of my professors was like, insight alone doesn't solve problems. It can like be a a step, but like you need coping skills, you need things to replace behaviors with, you need like, you know, better self-esteem, you need all sorts of stuff. Just understanding your problem doesn't solve it. I know. I think that's so important. So you just graduated recently with your master's in psychology. Yes, last week. <laughs> last week? Oh my God, you have so much going yeah. on in your life right now. Yeah, August is a pretty wild month. <laughs> yeah. Um, congratulations. So tell me, Thank did, you. Are, was it like a counseling psychology or more like ac- on the academic? Like, what are you, what made you d- want to go and why did I wanna, do this? Yeah. <laughs> why'd you do it? What are you going to do with it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great question. Um, I originally started the um, marriage and family therapy MFT program at Pepperdine. So my goal uh-huh. was like become licensed as a as a marriage and family therapist. Um, but over time, I realized that like I don't really want to do that. Um, I I'm a writer and a content creator, and I just do a lot of different things. And I think part of why I went back to school was like the instability of the entertainment industry. And then during the time I was in school, I had some things happen where I was like, I think I can continue to pursue my my main goal. Like I can continue to be a writer um, without having to have this massive backup career. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I realized that what I really wanted to do with the degree is use it on a more macro level. So not working necessarily with individual clients as a therapist, but instead like taking the tools and knowledge I have to like help my mental health advocacy and to help my writing. Um, So I've had uh, one book come out about like the intersection of dating and mental health. And so obviously being in school when I wrote that, I think made the book a lot better. I have a sub stack where I write a ton about mental health um, at Instagram that's mental health focused. And so yeah, there's some discomfort in like, what exactly will I use the master's in psychology degree in? Because I, I switched from clinical psych to just regular psych. Um, but I've learned so much. And I think that all of that really impacts um, my work. And uh, I just sold a novel where the the protagonist is a couples therapist. And like, oh, cool. you know, I wouldn't know the details of what that looks like had I not been in school. And so I'm trying to just like, be open to how it will impact my work rather than like, and now I will get this specific thing and do this specific thing. Totally. Yeah. I mean, your work is so, and there it, it's so 
entwined with like entwined. Health, that is the word I was looking for with mental health and psychology. And so that's wonderful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It doesn't have to mean that you become a therapist. It's like, there's so many other reasons to have that degree. Totally. It sounds like. Yeah. I had a dream last night though, that I was like getting my PhD and I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> In the dream, you were like, what are you doing? I was like, why did I think I'd get a break? I'm right back at school. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> and then I woke up this morning and I re- remembered the dream and I was like, oh, I'm not in school anymore. It is over. How wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. I love when it, when you wake up and for a hot minute, your life, your actual like exhausting, busy life is a reprieve because the dream was so, something you don't want to be in. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, so, so was there anything that we talked about today or that you said, I said any content that came up that in the moment made you have a little meta spirally experience? I guess I'm embarrassed that I'm still so insecure about my friendships. Like it, it, Mm. it's, it feels silly that I'm still there. Um, but also it's a journey and, um, I'm working on it and and maybe in a few years it won't feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard to be vulnerable. At any time I admit something that's vulnerable, it's like when someone else says it, like when I'm listening to you talk about that, I'm just like, yeah, like that's so honest. Like everyone has their shit. Like I would never think of it as like silly in any way. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I I'm still spiraling a little bit about that question you asked me about my anxiety (laughs) because it was like oh I'm so like what I have worked as a therapist for like almost 14 years why have I never tried that like what am I avoiding like I like you know and then I'm also spiraling a little bit about (laughs) I spiral constantly about any little exposing thing like when I was like even if this doesn't um at you and you were like no I know I understand art and I was like why did I say <laughs> like why did I feel the need to explain that to Allison <laughs> oh no now I'll spiral I was, no. I was totally goofing you I wasn't trying to be <laughs> no I know I don't center you in that in any way I am just like why did I feel the need to explain something so obvious you fucking idiot like that's what I do to myself oh I just Um, saw it as opportunity for a joke and I love to take those so I apologize no no see no this is so funny this is a real life interpersonal meta spiral like a (laughs) reciprocal spiral happening and I'm so sorry that it's I have caused it do, do not apologize. It is like totally me doing what I do. Like my let one of my schemas is just like that. I am always like that. I've, I'm just always doing something wrong. Like whatever happens, it's because I've done something wrong, you know? So oh, that's yeah. just what's going to come up. Also spiral related before we go, I have to share with you something. Cause I think maybe it's funny or relatable, but I bought your book. So I bought Overthinking About You, which I love the title so much. It's so perfectly encapsulates like relationship anxiety. And as soon as I heard about it and like read the description, I was like, oh my God, I have to read this because relationship OCD is like a big part of mine. And I just want to share with you, like I 
my, I, so I've been married for six ish years and I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but not in depth, but I like kind of nearly ended my engagement because of relationship OCD. Like I became obsessed with the thought that like there was something not right and it was completely abject. Like I was just like, I don't love him enough or what is love? Like I don't, something is wrong. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. And then going to therapy while I was going through that, like literally like on the cusp of making a really bad decision um, is when I finally fucking got diagnosed with OCD because my therapist at the time was like really poking holes in like those obsessive thoughts and like how I actually felt about my husband, Basil. And she was like, I think you have OCD. And then I went on fucking Zoloft and and I was like literally three weeks later, I was like, oh yeah, I love my uh, fiance so much like that <laughs> crazy that was crazy and I can go back and look at prior relationships where I didn't know I had OCD and I ended slash ruined them because of my obsessive yeah. um thinking anyway but the funniest so I just wanted to share that with you I'm so glad you wrote the book but the funniest part to me is that I have not read it yet because <laughs> And which I feel really ashamed of because it's been on my list for like months, like before you meet with Allison, you got to read that fucking book. And I haven't read it (laughs) because I'm like scared of it in this very meta relationship OCD way. Like I'm like, what if I read something in it that is just Mm -hmm. like too real and something bad happens to me, which I know it's the opposite intellectually. I know it's going to feel so fucking (laughs) validating and good and helpful, but I'm like scared of a book. That was so (laughs) much information, but I just really wanted to say all of that. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's like, you know, um, I think that the book, I hope really shows that, um, that there's no right way to do it. That mm-hmm. like this idea of like this is exactly what a relationship should look and feel like isn't true. Um, and so I hope that that message kind of gets through that it's like it's a lot of like person to person, partner to partner, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Um, but yeah, the relationship OCD of it all is a, is a real bitch. And I think one of the ways I really describe it is it's like, are you asking yourself those questions that can't be answered? Like, I can't tell you what love is. So how could I possibly know if I'm in love enough um, was something that I think really helped me. Oh, my God. Yes, that's such a good question. That's such a good framework around having that question come up. Mm-hmm. It's undefinable. Yeah. So why would I be able to define it? How There's no barometer. Like I always say, like I can't put your feelings of love in a petri dish and check to see if it's actually love, <laughs> you know. So, like, yes. asking yourself that all of the time: is this real love? Is this the right amount of love? It's like a question that can't be answered. And so, when you're asking yourself questions that can't be answered, it's more likely relationship OCD or relationship anxiety than like valid concerns. Oh my god! And like the. The manifestations of torturing yourself with those questions, like you just gave me this really brutal memory. Like now it doesn't upset me to talk about, but where like when I was in the thick of that hell with my then fiance, like I was in the bathroom 
at at my job, which I had like a corporate mental health job for like a hot second. It was fucking horrible. But like, (laughs) um, and you know that way, like when you're in a deep, when when you're in like an OCD in the clutches in a very, like in a way where you're just like in the thicket and you cannot get out. Like it was like all I thought about the entire day. And I remember going to the bathroom and looking at myself in the mirror and being kind of like, this is so embarrassing, but being kind of like, I'm going to like smile. Like, like when I think about him, like, do I smile? And then is that (laughs) smile a genuine smile or is it like a forced smile? And I was Mm -hmm. like smiling in the mirror, trying to discern it like the Petri dish, like crazy person like I just what the fuck like that is so unhinged to me it just it's just a person in a lot of pain I know know that's all it is that's all it is but it's it's like I'm so happy to be able to laugh about that now because it's so wild like it's such hilarious it was all suffering at the time but now I can look at that and be like oh my god that's so sad and like I feel so bad for that version of myself that was in so much pain that I was doing science experiments on my smiling (laughs) in the bathroom (laughs) at work (laughs) but it's relatable I'll give you that for sure (laughs) I'm so excited to read it I think it's it's so it's so interesting like I know that Anything I read that is related to this kind of stuff, it's always, if it's good, it's like always helpful. But it's so, I think part of why I wanted to bring up having not read it yet is just because it's so striking to me how powerful the avoidance impulses are. Mm. Of Even when it's, you're avoiding something that would clearly be like helpful or feel good. It's like anything related, anything in the realm. Like my first impulse is just like, no, you know? It's like no and yes. I would read it and not read that chapter. I would, right? Like I would, why don't you read the book? Uh, Because it's not all about relationship anxiety. It's like all different topics about like the intersection of of mental health and dating. And so I think what is me, what is my disorder is the chapter I dive into relationship OCD. But Mm -hmm. maybe read the rest of the book first and then see if you want to go back to that chapter. See, I feel like I should especially read that chapter. But maybe once you're more into the world of the book, into the tone of the book, into the message of the book, it won't feel as scary. Yeah. Is it so weird to be processing with someone how they should mentally engage with your book (laughs) that you wrote? Not really. (laughs) You're like, it's normal. (laughs) Very few things to me at this point feel weird. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Same. Well, thank you. I'm going to read it. I'm going to absolutely read that chapter. I appreciate your like kind of like gentle, loving suggestion. But I'm in a place too in like my healing around all this where I'm kind of like the thing that I'm scared of. Like I'm so aware that that's just my avoidance and that when I move through avoidance, I feel so good. So like I know for Mm -hmm. me, I have to just read that chapter. But, um, But thank you. And how do you feel right now as we're kind of wrapping up? Oh, I feel great now, but I want to now share an embarrassing story about Between Us. Okay. Where on TikTok, 
I accidentally shared a random video with you. I never met you in person. We just were like social media friends. And then you very kindly wrote back like that you like loved it. And I was like, oh my God, she must be like, why would you send me this? Like that was the moment where I was like, this is so embarrassing for you, Alice. And like, what do you, and I, and I thought it through and I was like, do I just let her think that I meant to send it to her? Like what? <laughs> and then I was like, no, like, oh, the truth. And I, I texted you, like messaged you, like, I did not mean to send that, but the, you know, <laughs> like, how yes. embarrassing. And I found that moment, well, first of all, and I told you this in our <laughs> message, but that I truly, just like looking at the reality versus the fears, like truly did not think for one second about why you would send that. Like I wasn't <laughs> expecting it, but it was a video I think about, was it about Orna and couples therapy? Yes. Okay. Which I fucking love Orna and I love that show. So I think I told you that I was just like, oh, cool. Like, hell yeah. I love Orna. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> I don't know why Allison knew that I might like this video, but I'll take it. Thanks. Did not think beyond that. And then when you told me about the accident, I found it so relatable because 100% if I had done that to you, I would never have chosen or been able to sit with you thinking that I would send you a video because the story in my head would be like, she's like what? what's wrong? What is wrong with her that she would send me a random ass video? And I couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to tolerate my fantasy, my like nightmarish fantasy about what you would think that meant about me as though like, what the fuck? What bad could that mean about a person? Also like, that's nice. That's nice to send a video. But I, so the whole thing is deeply relatable to me. And I loved that moment we had about it. And now. Yes, me too. <laughs> yes. You're welcome to send me any videos, but especially ones featuring Orna, my favorite couples mm-hmm. therapist on earth. Besides mine, Emily, who I love. Shout out, Emily. <laughs> I'm glad that um, you brought that up. I forgot about that. <laughs> See, I did not. I did not forget about that. <laughs> it was there. It was there in the background the whole time we've been talking. <laughs> yeah, that's. I always like to think about that too. Like the things that I never forget about because they feel so egregious and terrifying mm. and filled with anxiety. Like almost always, not something anyone else has ever thought about for more than one second. I know. I tell myself that all the time, that no one's really paying attention to me. And that's so freeing. Exactly. No one cares about you and your life in this way. And that's wonderful. (laughs) Like that. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shame Spiral. You can follow the pod at Pod Shame Spiral on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the usual places. This episode was edited by myself and Sarah Gabrielli, and original music was by Shadwick Wild. Please keep listening and rate and review if you're feeling generous. I have so many exciting guests lined up for our season. Thank you again for joining us and spiral on but not too much, okay? 